I got a lot to talk with you about this morning. So I'm going to be very strategic, if you don't mind, and where I'm going to get comments, because I have a lot of things I need to say to you. I need to keep my train of thought. I do want to thank Brother Don for doing a wonderful job teaching the class the last couple of times. I really appreciate him so much and him stepping, uh, stepping up and helping me during that time. Thank you, Brother Don. I really appreciate it. I also want to thank Brother Greg for the wonderful lesson he did this morning on Satan. Uh, really, really good. I, Greg, I don't know if you know this about me, but one of my things I like to do as a hobby is I like to get on YouTube and I like to watch uh, lions uh, and I like to watch different animals. I just like to watch how animals hunt. And I am not a fan of wildebeest. I hate wildebeest. I watch a lot of wildebeest on YouTube. I think they're some of the dumbest animals God created. They're not very bright at all. Uh, but one of the things about lions that I've noticed to kind of go with your lesson is you're right, lions do not like to work very hard with hunting. Usually when they hunt, even with wildebeest, they like to get the kids and the old, the old animals. Uh, it's, it's amazing watching wildebeest try to protect their young and the lions trying to infiltrate because they don't want to mess with the big males. Uh, they want to get the kids. And, and that's how lions are and the devil operates the same way. So I, I, that was a really good lesson, very well done. I appreciate it so much. Let's go to Revelation. Oh, well, I'm going to let until your wife finishes it, then I'll come in after she's done with it. <laughs> Let's go to Revelation 14. Let's read the first 11 verses of Revelation uh, chapter 14. We're going to try to spend today and Wednesday, Lord willing, doing Revelation 14. There's a lot going on here in Revelation 14 today. We'll see if we can just cover about the first half of it. Let's start with verse number one. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. And John says, the Apostle John says, And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of a loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists, harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they had kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in the full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. 
They have no rest day and night. Those who, who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Just to make sure we're on the same page, uh, since I've been gone for a couple of classes, let's kind of just go through a few slides here real quick. We're at a point in the book where we are being introduced to various enemies of God's people at this time. We've been introduced to the red dragon, the great red dragon, who is Satan. Brother Greg talked to us about that this morning. The Bible, in the Bible, Satan or the devil is sometimes portrayed as a lion. And in this case of Revelation, he's be, being portrayed as a great red dragon. He is the main enemy of God's people. We've also seen uh, that are in, been introduced to the sea beast and the earth beast. Both of these things represent different aspects of Rome, who I believe was uh, the henchman of Satan at this time. The political, the corrupt political power of the government and the false religion, the emperor worship that was being enforced at this time. And then here in Revelation 14, we're introduced to another character in the book, which is the harlot. Now these four different enemies that we're being introduced to here all represent the enemies of God's people, enemies who are trying to destroy the Lord's church, the Lord's universal church. The devil's trying to use a world empire to destroy the Lord's church. And I submit to you that if a world empire, if the devil could not use Rome, probably the strongest empire in the history of the world, if he could not use Rome to destroy the church, then guess what? He can't use anything to destroy the church. This was really his best shot to destroy the church. And he could not do it. That's the point of revelation. And that's the comfort God wants to give those who are part of his church even today. Now in Revelation 12, the first great enemy is introduced, the great red dragon. He's described as trying to defeat Jesus. He can't do it. That's what we saw in chapter 12. Jesus defeats him at Calvary. He's raised from the dead. And then the devil resorts to persecuting the people of God. If he cannot stop the scheme of redemption, what he will try to do is take down as many people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus as possible. At this time, he used Rome, but as Brother Greg said this morning, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, he continues to assault the people of God. He continues to try to hurt God in the worst way by stealing God's children away from him. That's what he's all about. Now... Let me move on here. Okay, chapter 13. Chapter 13, this was the chapter that Brother Don covered. The devil in this chapter uses two henchmen to accomplish his purposes. You got the sea beast that represents, I believe, the political power of the Roman Empire, the corrupt government. And then you got the earth beast, which represents the emperor worship system. Domitian wanting people in the empire to acknowledge him as Caesar and Lord to acknowledge him as a god. The emperor used this system to oppress Christians. Now the Christians faced all persecutions from these two beasts 2,000 years ago. The economic oppression, which you saw in the chapter, the imprisonment, even death. Despite their apparent victory over God's people, when we say their apparent victory, we're talking about the devil and his henchmen. God will eventually defeat both of these enemies. And that's something that's highlighted actually in the chapter. In Revelation 13 and verse 10. Look at Revelation 13 and verse 10 when concluding, giving us the introduction to the sea beast. It's interesting what verse 10 says in Revelation 13. If anyone is destined for captivity, 
to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, and that here, this is a reference to the sea beast. This is a reference to this henchman of Satan, one who is killing with the sword. If anyone kills with the sword, he, with the sword, with the sword, he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Do you see that? The perseverance and the faith of the saints. The saints will get through this. The saints will overcome the sea beast. That's the point of that verse. In verse number 18, here is wisdom. This is after introducing us to the earth beast. Here's the wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, not the number of God. This is the number of a man, someone inferior to God. And his number is 666. And so the point of all of this is these two beasts will not prevail. These two beasts will not prevail. This idea of 666, I know that's a big deal. People talk about that today. And, and there's a lot of debate on that. And I really don't think we can be dogmatic on it either way because the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what that is. There are some people who say that represents Nero. I don't particularly take that view, but there are some, some folks who ascribe to that. For those who take the early date of Revelation, the date that this book precedes uh, the destruction of, of Jerusalem, goes before destruction of Jerusalem, some say this number represents the Jewish high priest at this time. Uh, they try to come up with numbers that were found around the temple. The number six that is found around the temple. I don't take that particular view. I just take the view that six is short of seven. Seven in the book represents what? So this six is short of seven. This, no, this, this enemy will be defeated. This enemy is going to come up short. This enemy is going to get close, very close, but it ultimately will fail. Now, I'm not dogmatic on that. You may have a different view on that. But regardless of the view you hold on what 666 stands for, the main thing I think we do have to agree on is this number has nothing to do with anything in our future. Does that make sense? It has nothing to do with anything in our future. This just has to do with the future of, uh, from the perspective of these Christians, of these Christians. Does that make sense? This enemy will not be able to defeat, ultimately de defeat God's cause against, or that was, that was being launched by the devil using Rome. He's going to come up short. It's not going to happen. So, so I think that's just the way we need to take that for now. Okay, let's go to the rest of this here. Revelation 12, we looked at that. Now we go to Revelation 13. The devil's two henchmen are introduced, the beast from the sea, the great political power of Rome, the beast from the earth, emperor worship, both being used by Satan to accomplish his purposes. They're both being used to try to destroy the kingdom of God they're waging war, raging war against God and his people. And then in chapter 14, what we're going to see this morning, starting today, is again, the emphasis is made that God's people will be victorious and the enemies will suffer judgment. They're going to suffer judgment from God. And so let's just go back through the text now. Let's go back to the text and let's look at verses 1 through 5 of the text. Let's try to take this as slow as we can. And see what we can learn from this. Look at verse number one. Look at verse number one. What do you see in verse number one? When John looks, he's seen a vision here. Okay. We've been introduced to the sea beast and the earth beast. And then he sees a vision. What does he see first? The lamb. Who's the lamb? This is Christ. This is Jesus Christ. Jesus is called the lamb here. 
Is he called the lamb anywhere else in this book? That's right. He's called the lamb in chapter 5. Remember when John saw Jesus, he says he saw him as a lamb standing as if slain. Chapter 5 and verse 6. Is Jesus called the lamb in other places in the gospel? Besides Revelation. Can you think of an example? John 1.29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. How did John know that 100%? Well, he knew that with certainty because of what he saw at the what of Jesus? The baptism of Jesus. When he saw the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus as a dove, and when he heard God speak from heaven and say, This is my Son and whom I'm well pleased. That was John's confirmation that Jesus was the lamb. Go ahead, Lance. It's easy to forget that John and Jesus were cousins. And they, they were. They spent a lot of family time in Jerusalem during the three uh, 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 pilgrimages of every year. And so by 30 years, they, they had some familiarity with each other. It's just that family familiarity is not brought out in the scriptures. It's John the baptizer and Jesus the Messiah. No, it, it, that is interesting, and, and, and I agree with that. Um, and I just also will add to that, because I think you're making a good point. They were cousins. Uh, but I don't think John was sure of Jesus until the baptism. I don't think, because Jesus had a lot of family members. Well, that's my point. Who didn't believe in him. Right. Yeah, it, yeah. Sometimes because it's family, yes. it's a little bit harder on the pill to swallow. Absolutely, absolutely. Done, yes, sir. Well, you're always a step ahead of me because that was my next question. No, you're right. You answered my question because my next question was, what is the significance of Jesus being the lamb? What's the significance of that? And it's like you say, it goes back to the idea of sacrifice. The Jews understood that. Uh, and that's exactly the point of, of it. It is because of Jesus' sacrificial death as the lamb that the Christians ultimately are able to be victorious. It is because of his sacrifice as the lamb that they're ultimately able to be redeemed and brought into the Lord's kingdom. So I think that there's a reason why he's portrayed as the lamb more than the lion even in Revelation. It's because of his work as the lamb that we get to receive victory ultimately. So that's a great point. So let's keep talking about the lamb a little bit. Going back to verse 1. Verse 1. Where is the lamb in the vision, where is he standing? Mount Zion. Don't we sing songs about Mount, Mount Zion? Do you know what you're singing when you talk about Mount Zion? Can somebody tell me what is Mount Zion? What is that? Yes. So the Messiah is prophesied to come in Mount Zion. But let me ask this question, because that's a good point. It was Mount Zion... Was Mount Zion a literal place? Where was it? Yes. But even before the temple, what was Mount Zion? Well, well, that was Mount Moriah. But Mount Zion was first the city of David. 
the city of David, when, when David conquered, conquered the Jebusites, the, the first Jerusalem was to call the city of David. I've been to the city of David. And it's a small area. And later on, when Solomon became king, he expanded it, the city of Jerusalem more north. And when he expanded it, he then expanded it over Mount Moriah, where the temple would be built. So Mount Zion, at first, is a reference to the city of David, which you can visit to this day, the city of David. But then later, Zion would be used to refer to what you said, which, is, which would be Solomon's expansion, which would include the Temple Mount. You see? So the point here is this is symbolic, right? This is not, this is not like the premillennialists say where Jesus is coming back and establishing some earthly kingdom. The point of this, and this is, goes back to the Old Testament references here, Jesus is the Messiah and he is with his people because Mount Zion ultimately represented where God was with his people, right? Is where God's presence was with his people. Whether we're talking about the city of David, the first city that David conquered from the Jebusites, or, or ultimately where the temple was built. This is where God's presence was with his people. And I think that's the idea there. God is with his people. And, it's, and when, you, when we really appreciate that and understand that, then passages like Hebrews make more sense to us and they become more powerful to us. Look back at Hebrews. I know I keep taking you here all the time, but I just love these verses because they're just so powerful. In Hebrews 12, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22, in Hebrews 12 and verse 22, and here the Hebrew writer is speaking to Christians, uh, people like us, members of the Lord's church. And he says, but you have come to what? You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the place where you are in the very presence of God. You are in God's presence. God is with you and to the city of the living God. Well, if you are a Hebrew, the Hebrew Christians who are reading this, they, they were thinking about all these Old Testament references like Gary's talking about. They're thinking about that. They understood what that was all about, going back to David and Solomon. But now the Hebrew writers use that in the New Testament. And he's talking about the fulfillment in the New Testament, how that was a shadow of what we have now. We are at the, the real Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and what? Church. The church of the firstborn who are what? Enrolled in heaven. Remember that enrolled in heaven. Because that book of life is mentioned in Revelation, isn't it? Isn't the book of life mentioned in Revelation? Well, this is this is the same idea. Book of life enrolled in heaven. Same idea. That you know that the book of life that is mentioned in Revelation, I hope you've noticed it so far, it's not just mentioned in Revelation and it's not just mentioned in Hebrews, but it's mentioned all through the Bible. Moses spoke of it. Moses spoke of it in his time when he begged God not to blot, blot him out of his book. The psalmist mentions it in the Psalms. The psalmist talks about the book of life. David speaks of the book of life. Jesus talks about the book of life in his ministry. When he talks about those who have their names recorded in heaven, this, this book is found all over the place. And if we're part of the church, guess what? We're in the book. If we're walking with God, being faithful to God, and you can be erased or blotted out of the book. Because remember back in Revelation, what was it, Revelation 3 or Revelation 2, when those, I think it was in Sardis, uh, Jesus was talking about how he was going to blot them out, erase their names out the book. So there it is again. It's all over the place. 
But here we see that if you're part of a church, your name is enrolled in heaven. And notice how you have come to Mount Zion. You're at Mount Zion right now. Do you know that? You're at Mount Zion. You are part of the city of God. You have the real fulfillment of that because you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You're able to be in the presence of God right now, even this morning. And so we have here the Lamb is at Mount Zion. He is with his people. And let me just say this. Let me just say this, that in addition to being at Mount Zion now, there's also a sense in which we're seeking to get to Mount Zion, if that makes sense. Because later on in Revelation, and I think even in this chapter, we have the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's what ultimately? Well, that's heaven. And that's what we're, that's what we're trying to seek, where we're going to then be in the perfect presence of God. So you got to watch the context always because Mount Zion can mean different things in different places. There's a sense in which we're in Mount Zion now. There's also a sense in which we're seeking a, a closer and even more perfect fellowship with God, which is in heaven. And I think that's ultimately what this vision is, is, is portraying here. Brother Gary, yes, sir. That's exactly right. Brother Gary was saying that the idea of worshiping in spirit and in truth. Why? Well, because you're in the presence of God. Because you've come to Mount Zion. Because you are part of the temple of God, which is the church. There's a lot going on here. And I think as Christians, sometimes we sell ourselves short on what we have right now, even on the earth. Because we fail to really dig into the Old Testament and see what that meant in the Old Testament and how those Old Testament symbols and references are ultimately fulfilled under the new covenant and that we have right now. Uh, so that, that's a good, good points. So we have the lamb at Mount Zion. The lamb at Mount Zion, and he's portrayed, would you agree with this, in this vision going back to Revelation 14? He's victorious. Does he look victorious to you? He's standing on Mount Zion. He's victorious. But who's with him? Is he by himself? Who's with him? Look at the text again, Revelation 14. Who's standing with him? All the 144,000. Who are these 144,000? Have we seen these people before in the book anywhere? Yes, we saw them in chapter 7. It's the same people. It's the same people. What did the 144,000 represent back in chapter 7? The church, the totality of God's people, because there's that number 12 again, 12 times 12 times 12. What does 12 represent? A fullness, completeness, Old Testament. God's people consisted of how many tribes? How many apostles? 12. You see that? So when you do the math on this, we have the idea of Jesus with his people. Jesus with the faithful and true. That's what the text says. Jesus with those who have been sealed or marked by God, not by the beast. So you got two different groups of people being marked in this book, right? 
You got the mark of the beast, but you also got those who were marked by God. You got the mark of Satan, and you got those who've been sealed by God. The idea of being sealed or marked by God, which the 144,000 were, is the idea that these people belong to God. These are God's people. These are God's special and holy people. God's people in this vision are standing with the Lamb in victory, and I would even venture to say that they're standing with Him in victory in heaven. I believe this is heaven here because there's no guarantee that these people here are going to live to see the ultimate demise of Rome, right? But does that mean they still wouldn't be victorious, even though they may be like Antipas? Remember back in, what was that, Revelation 2 or 3, Antipas, who got killed? Does that mean that, that, that Antipas couldn't experience any victory? Or the apostles, the apostle Paul, who was killed during the time of Nero? Does that mean that God's people who are killed don't get to experience any victory? Oh, they experience victory. And where do we ultimately experience our victory? Where do we experience it ultimately? In heaven. We experience it in heaven. And I think that's the idea here. So let's talk about this a little bit more. Look at verse 2. Verse 2. We have Jesus standing with his people in victory. This is when the book gets really good for God's people because it's been really bad so far. But now it's going to get good. John hears a sound from heaven. That was a mixture of some very powerful things, a mixture of things that are peaceful and powerful and pleasant. And, and in verse 3, he hears the 144,000 doing what? What are they doing in verse 3? Singing a new song. They're singing a new song. They're singing it before the throne of God, right? They're singing it before those who are in heaven. The, the elders and the four living creatures. This song is exclusively for them. Only they know it. You see that? Only they know the song. We don't know it. They know it. Now, we may know it, and I believe we're going to know it one day. This is a song for them. It's a song of victory. It's a song of victory for God's people in heaven. It is a song that they were able to sing because, like Don said, of the blood of the Lamb. Because of the blood of Jesus. It was a song that they could sing because they had been redeemed. It is a song that I believe we're all going to sing one day. Because we're all God's people. We're all going to sing this song of victory. Go ahead, Brother Don. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Yep. Yes, yes. If you look at Revelation 5 and verse 9, Brother Don made reference to that. There's the idea of a new song there. And the scene is different there. The scene there is the, is the scene where Jesus is being praised and glorified because he's the only one that can break open the seals. But when we fast forward to Revelation 14, we find God's people again singing a new song. But now they're able to sing the song because of the Lamb's execution of what is found in the book with the seven seals. This is a song of victory. It's a song of victory for God's people. And it's a song I want to sing one day. 
And it's a song we will sing together one day because guess what? Even though we don't live in the time of the Roman Empire and we're not being persecuted by Rome, we're still going to experience victory over whatever enemies the devil is using against us today. And he's using enemies against us today. Wouldn't you agree? We're battling things today too. And we're going to be able to sing a song of victory in heaven because of Jesus, because of what he has done for us through his blood. And so please make application. Make application from that. Be ready to sing the new song. It's for God's people. Now, there's some other things said about these people here I want to talk about. Because it's interesting how, beginning in verse 4, in addition to telling us that we're going to sing this new song, and that they were going to sing a new song, these people are described in some powerful ways. And I think what is said about them here needs to describe us too. So let's talk about it. Let's start with verse 4. It says in verse 4 that these people, these people who are mentioned here, have not defiled themselves. They have not defiled themselves with what? Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. They have not defiled themselves with women. It says they are pure. They're sexually pure. They're chaste. I want you to go in your Bible to Hebrews again. Go back to Hebrews. Go to chapter 13. And as you turn to chapter 13, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about this. I want you to do two things at the same time. Go to chapter 13 in Hebrews. But let me ask you this. Why is that mentioned there? Why would that be mentioned in this scene that these people had not defiled themselves with women? What would sexual purity have to do with what's going on here? What do y'all think? Brother Gary said the idolatry going on at the time. I think that's exactly right. Rome, remember, going back to the scene, I don't have it up right now, I thought I did, with the harlot. What did the harlot represent? The sexual immorality that, was, that had just totally permeated its way throughout the empire. Think about the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth. What's one of the main things we know about the city of Corinth? It was a sexually immoral city. I mean, a place like Vegas has nothing on Corinth. There was a temple there that was devoted to sexual immorality, where there would be temple prostitutes and men from all over the world at that time would go to that, that temple and have sex with these prostitutes as part of pagan worship. This was all throughout the empire. I mean, we think we're living in a sexually immoral time, and we are. Don't get me wrong, we are. But this is nothing new under the sun. Rome was doing this 2,000 years ago. And so look at what the Bible says in Hebrews 13 and verse 4. Hebrews 13 and verse 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. It's to be pure, because fornicators, that is people who have sex and are not married, and adulterers, that is people who, have, who are married but they have sex with somebody who's not their spouse, those people will be judged. So here we have condemnation from God against sexual immorality. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Remember I brought up the city of Corinth and how sexually immoral it was? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, Brother Greg was talking about fleeing this morning, fleeing from Satan. Well, look at what Paul says in chapter 6 verse, verse 18. Flee, run from immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And then Paul goes on to talk about how your physical body 
is also a temple of the living God. And so we see that these people here are sexually pure. They are chaste. They're not involved in the gross sexual immorality that was pervasive in the world at this time. And that same thing should apply today. That same thing should apply today to God's people. We have no business being sexually immoral and using our body for purposes that God did not make them for. God expects his people to be pure, to be chaste, to be holy. Sex is not bad when it is kept in its proper place, which is where? In the marriage bed. That's where God wants it to be. And so these people have not defiled themselves with the idolatrous worship of sexual immorality, but they also do something with the lamb, verse 4. They follow the lamb where? They follow him wherever he goes. Do you follow the lamb wherever he goes? The idea of following the lamb wherever he goes is the idea of whatever the lamb tells me to do, guess what? I'm going to just do it. I'm just going to do what he says. Whatever you tell me to do, however you tell me to live my life, I'm going to just do that. Go to Luke chapter 9, look at verse 23. In Luke chapter 9 and verse number 23, Jesus said this. In Luke 9, I'm going to verse 23. It says, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. That is, we got to put Jesus' will above our will. We have to deny ourselves, take up the cross daily. The idea of taking up the cross is the idea of sacrifice for him and suffering for him. Because sacrifice and suffering is what the cross meant for Jesus. That's also what the cross should mean to us. We got to take up the cross daily. And we have to what? We got to follow him. Take up the cross daily, every day, and follow him. These people in Revelation did that. They had sacrificed for Jesus. They were suffering for Jesus. And they were following him. The text says wherever he goes. That should describe us too. Going back to verse 4. It says they have been purchased from among men. As the first fruits, do you see that? The first fruits to God and the Lamb. Someone tell me, what is the idea of first fruits when you think about it from an Old Testament standpoint? What was the first fruits? Say it again, someone. The best, yes. This is the best. God wants the first fruits. These people are the first fruits. What does that mean if we're the first fruits? We are God's first fruits. You can say it, it's okay. You know, it's not arrogant to say what the Bible says. You know what it says? We're the best among those in the world. So that sounds arrogant. Well, not when you understand what God is really saying. Does this mean we're not sinners? No, it doesn't mean that. Does it mean that we don't have our list of bad things we, 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 we've done in our lives? We all have bad things we've done in our lives. None of us deserve God's grace and God's love. We don't deserve that, but that still doesn't mean we're not special to God. That still doesn't mean that we don't stand out as the best of the crop among everyone else on the earth. I'm reminded of Hebrews 11 and verse 38. Remember when describing the people of the, in the hall of faith, Hebrews 11, 38 says that the world, the world didn't deserve those people. The world wasn't fit for those people. The text says that. 
Why? Because these people were God's people and they lived by a higher standard of living. You got to find a balance here. We can't be arrogant. We can't be arrogant. We got to be humble, but we also got to understand how important we are to God and that we are the best of the fruits. We're the first fruits. The world is not worthy of us either if we live for God. That's what the text says. We got a problem with that. We got a problem with the Holy Spirit. God views us as special. We're valuable and we're important. Verse 4 also says there is no line in these people. No guile. Do you always tell the truth? Are you honest? Only we can answer that question ultimately. God knows it and we know it. You know, sometimes people are such liars that they lie to themselves and they believe their own lies. You ever met people like that? God's people don't lie. God's people don't support liars. We tell the truth. There's no gal in us because Jesus had no gal in him, did he? He was honest. And then one more thing I want to say about this is these people, according to verse 4, were blameless. Can someone tell me what it means to be blameless? What does it mean to be blameless? Does that mean you have no sin? Yes. You know, an elder is supposed to be blameless. Isn't that a qualification of an elder? Does that mean an elder got to be perfect? There's the case we wouldn't have any elders in the church. But you know, it's not just elders who are to be blameless. You know who else is supposed to be blameless? All of us. The idea of being blameless is the idea that we're not walking in sin. We're not currently walking in sin. There is no evil charges made against us that can be legitimately sustained. That's the idea. You know, sometimes we look at the qualifications of an elder and we make those qualifications into none, you know, none qualifications where no one can qualify for them. It's even worse in some cases where we look at the qualifications and we say, well, if a man's got a faithful wife and two kids who are Christians, then he's qualified to be an elder. That's ridiculous. We've totally disregarded like 16 other qualifications. <laughs> all of this is important. And all of this is part of being blameless. Blameless is important. But another thing I want to say about that is these qualifications, when you look at the qualifications of a shepherd, are really at the end of the day qualifications that we all should have. I mean, is, is it okay for Jason to train his children in the ways of God, but I don't have to do that? I shouldn't have to do that then, right? Shouldn't I have to train my children in the ways of God? Shouldn't I be the husband of one wife? Or is it, well, that should be Jason. I can be flirtatious and be with all kinds of different women. Is that the way it's supposed to be? We're all supposed to have those qualifications. Jason can't love money. I can love money. Jason's supposed to have control of his temper. I don't. Jason's supposed to be blameless. I'm not. Is that ridiculous that sounds? We're all supposed to be striving to be the kind of people God wants us to be. It's just that shepherds are a model or an example to the flock when it comes to those things. That's all that means. And so as we close this, just think about those things. Look at these people. They're first fruits. No gal. No lying. Blameless. Pure. That's why they're part of the 144,000. And that's how we be part of that group as well. Don, I had a whole lot more I wanted to say. But we'll stop right there. Let's pick up on Wednesday with verses 6 uh, down to verse 11. 
There's a lot going on in this chapter, but we're doing pretty good on time. So we're okay right now, but I just want you to go back home, read that chapter, think about it, and then Wednesday, Lord willing, we're going to, just keep, we're going to dive back into it. That's okay? I appreciate y'all this morning. Thank you so much.